Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bccweb.com. Hey, I just want to tell you a little bit about uh, kind of uh, before we move on to the uh, service. Obviously, Grace is being dedicated, and just so you're aware of what what's been going on. Um Fru and I, a few years ago, decided that we should become foster carers, and we felt it was God, God pushing us in that direction, and, and so we did, and then at, at just over two years ago, uh, we were agreed as foster carers, and they asked us to take um, Grace, who at the time was four years old, or she, she was just about to turn five, and uh, she came from a very, very difficult circumstance. Her, uh, she, she was in foster care. And she was, she was about to go to an adopted, adoptive family. It had all been agreed and she'd met the new parents. And the week that she was due to go there, um, you know, these things take a long time. And the week she was due to go, uh, they pulled out. And if you can imagine what that could do to a, to a vulnerable four-year-old uh, girl, she was, she was in pieces, really. And, and she came to us as a short-term placement. Um, they said, you know, while we look for a... A uh, suitable family uh, to, uh, to to adopt her and, and take her in um, as their for, as what we call her forever family, and and over the kind of weeks and months that followed, it kind of became clear to us that actually we were the suitable family, and that God had brought us together. And sorry, uh, and and obviously went through the process of of uh, trying to adopt her and it's not something normally that foster carers do um, and it was uh, agreed and finally we go before the judge at the Bromley Family Court in the morning to have it all signed off sorry it's a happy <laughs> um, and obviously because we've had all our birth children dedicated we felt it was right to do the same with grace and just present her before God and say just thank you to God for bringing her to us and um, for the way he's working things together. So, so we're in our series. I better move on. Um, can I have a better life? Um, that's a PowerPoint up there, Luke. Uh, uh, so can I have a better life? Looking at the book of Ruth. And uh, we know that at the time, that the, time, the book of Ruth is set in the same time as the book of Judges. And there was that famous, uh, that, that, that line at the end of the book of Judges that kind of I brought up last time and Mark brought up before that said, um, uh, at that time there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And, and it's such a powerful statement. And it's such a statement that just carries from 3,000 years ago when that was written to today. We know that tendency is in us now as well to, to do what's right in our, own eye, in our own eyes. It's actually the same that's been true since the beginning of time, since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, wanting to do what was right in their own eyes. And kind of, it leads to hot water always. It, all, it always ends up in a messy situation. And, and I was thinking about this, and it's especially true, I think, when you're uh, a teenager. You know that, that thing you go through as a teenager where you're trying to... Uh, challenge the authority of your parents and uh, what's right in their eyes and what's right in your eyes just seems totally different 
And I was going to tell you all sorts of stories about Gideon, but I'm not going <laughs> to do that. That would be mean. Um, but there was a time when I was a teenager uh, and I went out with my friends. We were at, uh, I was six, just turned 16 and we were hanging out in uh, Wolverhampton Town Centre, which is what we used to do on a Saturday. And we, we ended up going into a motorbike shop and uh, the salesman in this shop did a fantastic job of convincing me and my two friends that we should get motorbikes. Um, obviously, we had no money, um, but he said, you don't need to worry about that because you can get it on higher purchase. Um, all you need to do is to get your parents to sign this, this form that, that they will guarantor, guarantee the credit. And of course, me and my friends think, well, yeah, this is obviously the right thing to do. And of course, my parents are going to say yes to that. Look, it's, it's, it's just obvious. The salesman had been brilliant. So all the way home, we were convinced that within a week, we'd, be the right, you know, we'd have our own 50cc motorbikes and we'd be tearing around everywhere. And obviously, I went home and I brought my parents into the kitchen, as I always did with these serious conversations. And I kind of presented it as good news to them. Um, uh, you never guess what. We've been offered this great deal, me and my two friends. Um, and uh, all you need to do is to say that um, you will guarantee the payments. And I looked at them. And they looked at me. And with such wisdom, they both stood there. And then, I'll never forget what they, what they did next. <laughs> and they just laughed their heads off. And of course, I was like, what? What's the problem here? Because what was right in my own eyes, as a 16-year-old who'd never ridden a motorbike, had no income, uh, was different to what was right in my parents' eyes. And I kind of get the impression that in the, in the time of the judges, the, the kind of the people of Israel had that same relationship with God. What was right in their eyes was very different to what was right in God's eyes. And here we are then, in the book of Ruth. Um, and, you know, the, this whole idea of being what's right in our, our eyes, it leads to this sense of entitlement. You think you're entitled to things. You think you're, um, you know, uh, I, particularly with social media, right? You look at what people have got and what people are doing with their life, and their lives look amazing. You look at their Facebook posts, and we forget that all we're seeing is the highlights of their life. And you compare it to my life and say, well, they're doing this. I should be doing that. They're buying this. I should be buying that as well. I should be, I'm entitled to have the same life that they have got. And we forget that actually all we're seeing is this highlight reel. We're seeing the best bits. Nobody puts the worst bits onto Facebook. And so we have this sense of entitlement. And entitlement just leads to debt. It leads to financial ruin. It leads to broken relationship. And we have such an entitlement culture uh, now, and I see it at, at work all the time, particularly with the, young, with the young people that I teach, who feel like they're, they're entitled to so much, rather than feeling like they should work and, 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 um, and, and kind of work for what they, what they get. So we're in our seventh week in the book of Ruth, and we're coming towards uh, chapter three which is where we're going to be today. But before we go into that, I've got one point today that I hope you take home. One point. It's not a simple point, okay? It's, it's quite long-winded. Normally, if I bring a, kind of a, a point to my message, it's nice and snappy. 
and I couldn't make this any snappier, so I'm really sorry. So what I thought I would do is, rather than wait till the end and tell you what the point is, I thought I'd give it to you at the beginning, and then you've got time to think it through and ponder it, maybe write it down and try and work out what it is I'm trying to say, and then it will kind of tie in with what I'm going I'm to teach about. So would you mind putting the uh, first slide up? So here's my point for today. You can see it's not snappy at all. Our future needn't be determined by our past choices or present circumstances. We are not entitled to anything, but our story can be redeemed. Okay? I'm going to say it again. Our future needn't be determined by our past choices or our present circumstances. We are not entitled to anything, but our story can be redeemed. So let's just go through to our um, scripture for today, which is Ruth uh, chapter 3 and the first uh, 10 verses. And I'm going to read it through and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. So here we go. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. So in this passage and in this book of Ruth, we've got three main characters. We've got uh, Ruth, we've got Boaz and we've got Naomi. And what I want to do is to look at each character in turn and think about, okay, well, what choices did they make? What were the circumstances that brought them to this, this point in history, this, point, this, this coming together of these three characters? What brought them to this place, essentially? And what can we learn from them that we can apply to our lives? What can we see in, in their characters and in their decisions that kind of are relevant to us? That, you know, decisions that maybe we are, have made or are making. Um, so hopefully we'll find ourselves in their story. So I'm going to start off by looking at Naomi. So Naomi, is, uh, she's at the tail end of the worst decade you could imagine. Okay, through uh, choices that she's made and through external circumstances, She's had a really horrible 10 years. Um, it started off with a, a famine, uh, and they left Bethlehem, and they went to Moab to live. They left the place of God's provision and went to where they thought they would get a better life. And um, while they were there, firstly, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies, and then her two sons die. And so you've got famine, you've got death, and then you've got the worst thing of all, the thing that keeps Naomi up at life uh, at night is the fact that she's got no grandchildren. For the 10 years that they were there, for the, for the time that her, her sons were married, they had no children, they were barren. 
And so she's got nobody to look after her in her old age. There's no heirs for the family. There's no people to take on the family land uh, when they get older. And so the future is looking bleak, looking bleak for Naomi. And, and I think, you know, we can relate to this. We can relate to this in, in, on a number of levels. Sometimes circumstances make us feel like we're going through a really empty time. And this is the word that Naomi used. She said, uh, you know, uh, she started off with a full life. And the word she used for full days, it means abundant. It means like an overflowing grain store. She had a full life. And then through these decisions and through these circumstances, her life became empty. And I know that we we can go through those periods in our life, whether it's at work. There's a guy at where I work, um, at college, and uh, he was a lecturer. And then a year or so ago, he, he was offered a, uh, a promotion. He was offered more money um, in order to take on a, uh, a leadership role. And um, you know, he, he jumped at the chance. It meant you know, he would get more money. And for him, that was, that was his goal. And he thought you know, that would be it, uh, the route to his better life. And he spent the last year complaining every day about the job he does. He used to love teaching, and now he doesn't get to teach anymore. He's always overseeing things and writing admin stuff. And this decision that he's made has made his life empty, certainly as far as work is concerned. And I think we can do that. We can make decisions at work, and we can be in a position where we look back and think, oh, I remember when I used to do that, and my life was empty. Maybe you've gone for a different job in order to get a better life, and it just hasn't worked out. And the life, the full life you had before has gone empty. Maybe it's to do with your family. Maybe your home is not the safe, secure place of rest that you need it to be. And you look back and you think, oh, I remember when kind of the, the, the fa- my family and my home was a, was, a, was a good place. It was safe. And now it just feels empty. Maybe it's to do with money. All of us have decisions and concerns, whereas money is concerned. It can, it's a very powerful uh, thing in our lives. And um, maybe we've made some decisions. I know Fru and I have some friends who you looked at their life eight years ago and they were on this huge upwards trajectory and they were investing in property and they bought lots and lots of property. And then when the recession hit, they didn't just lose the property they bought, they lost everything. They lost their own house and it was devastating for them. And, you know, it seemed that they were uh, kind of overstretched and the life, the full life that they had suddenly they feel like it's empty. Maybe it's your health. You know, if, you, if you're going through a, a period where your health has not been good and it just feels like, I remember when I had uh, kind of wholeness in my body and my, my, I was well all the time and now it just feels like I'm ill so much of the time and my life was full and now it's empty. So we can really relate to this. So Naomi and Ruth make a decision to go back to uh, Bethlehem, uh, back to the uh, land of God's provision. And events seem at last like they're starting to move in the right direction. And it reminded me of the, uh, the C.S. Lewis book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, where it says that they had, they had winter for a thousand years. And they make this statement, um, and this statement keeps coming up uh, when they first arrive in Narnia. It says, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. And it's kind of saying, we're, we're about to tip over into a new thing. Uh, winter's on its way out. Springtime is coming. And Naomi's in that position now. She's feeling like, okay, 
you know, Ruth is starting to bring in food and she can see the potential. She's like, God is on the move here. God is doing something. And, you know, we've, we've had this emptiness and this bitterness, but God is starting to do something. God is on the move. And, um, and she takes hold of this glimmer of hope and she gives instruction to Ruth about what she needs to do. And we see this same process in so many stories in Scripture, so many of the big heroes of faith in the Old Testament and in the New Testament go through this empty time and then they come out of it uh, in fullness and in God's fullness. One of my favourite characters growing up was uh, the character of Joseph that we find in Genesis. And we know the story of Joseph who, you know, his his father uh, kind of favours him and gives him that kind of coat and his brothers are jealous and they want to kill him and in the end they don't kill him but they sell him into slavery. This is dark for Joseph and he gets sold to slavery, he ends up in Egypt and then again through no fault of his own, through these external circumstances, he finds himself in prison and he's there for more than 10 years. He's in prison and it's dark and you know he could look back and I remember when my life was so full back with my father and now it's empty. And we know what, how it ends up, that um, Pharaoh brings him out of there and he interprets Pharaoh's dream and Pharaoh makes him number two in the land. And uh, you know, what, a, what a great turnaround. But then his brothers come before him, don't know it's him until he reveals himself to them. And of course they're worried. They think, okay, this Joseph, he's a powerful guy, he's going to take revenge on us. And he, and he says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And he said, bring, bring dad, bring the whole family, bring them all. We've got a place for you here in Egypt. You're going to be safe from the famine. You're going to be looked after here. And they come. And then Jacob dies. And again, the brothers think to themselves, oh, no. Now our dad's dead. Joseph's got no reason to be nice to us anymore. Now he's going to take revenge. But Joseph makes this really important statement uh, at the end of uh, the book of Genesis in chapter 50. Um, He says this, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that word intended, I was looking up, it means to weave. What you wove, the plans that you wove that would do me harm, actually God rewove them. God reweaves those plans, those things that seem like they're pulling us down and they're bringing harm to our lives. God reweaves those circumstances. He takes those threads that seem like they're wove for harm and he reweaves them into something good. And we see that so much in Scripture. God redeems the story. So the life thread for us, that sometimes we're in that dark place and it seems like the life thread is weaving difficult circumstances and emptiness in our life. God can reweave and God does reweave all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose so Naomi she's not experienced the better life that she was expecting when she went to Moab but she sees that God is on the move and she sees that God can reweave and redeem the story so that's Naomi let's quickly look at Boaz now so Boaz um, you know this man this older man who looks like he's a fairly well-to-do guy, fairly wealthy, he's well-respected. What brought him to this place? And what, what shaped his character? Well, this is really exciting, actually, because I um, can't wait to tell you this. Uh, we need to go back to uh, uh, a few decades to Joshua, the book of Joshua. Um, and 
In the book of Joshua, right at the start, we see the Joshua leading the people of Israel and they're waiting across the, the, the Jordan, waiting to enter Canaan and take the promised land that God has, uh, is going to give to them. And what uh, Joshua does is he sends two spies into Jericho just to check out. Say, okay, just tell us what's going on there. What are we going to do? Who are we going to meet? Who are we going to have to face? And the spies go to Jericho and they end up in the house of Rahab, a prostitute. Um, maybe not the best place to end up, but that's where they are. And Rahab, she takes them in and she makes this decision to hide them. Hide them from the king's soldiers. These soldiers are looking for, for them. They know that these spies have come in. And, and I think they probably know that they've uh, gone to Rahab's house because they look in Rahab's house. And Rahab hides them and protects them and actually sends the soldiers in the wrong direction. And she says to the spies, look... I know your God is on the move. I know that your God is about to do something here. And, and I want to be on the right side. And so I'm asking you, I'm looking after you. I'll look after you now. But when your armies come in, I know God is going to be with them. You need to protect me and you need to protect my family. You need to keep us safe. And of course, they agree to do that. They agree to uh, keep Rahab and her family safe. So she makes this decision to not let her past circumstances, the choices that she's made, the labels that people have got on of her, she makes a decision not to let those interfere with the future that she's kind of planning for. And she changes her future. In that moment, she makes a decision to change her future and put herself in the hands of God. And it's great because we read uh, Joshua chapter 6, verse 25. Obviously, the, the... the Israelites come in and we know they march around the wall and Jericho falls and they come in and they destroy everything. It says that they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her. Because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. So the person who was writing this obviously was, was aware of Rahab living among the Israelites uh, to that day. So she should be dead. She should have been wiped out. But instead, she makes herself eligible to be a member of God's family. Not entitled. She wasn't entitled to it. She should have been wiped out. But she makes herself eligible. And God redeems her story. And then her story continues. She doesn't hide. We, we read in the New Testament, she crops up in the book of Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews talks about Rahab as this hero of faith. He said, by faith, Rahab did what she did. You know, she's listed amongst all those great people of faith like Daniel and, and David. And then in the book of James, James writes about her and talks about her righteousness. Rahab was considered righteous because of her actions, because of what she did. In that moment. So, so Rahab has turned from this foreign prostitute into this hero of faith and righteousness. And she does that in that moment that she makes that, makes that decision. She should be dead, but her story continues. Why am I talking to you about Rahab? Well, this is the really interesting bit because if we go to, uh, we know in the, in the um, first chapter of Matthew, there's a whole genealogy of you know, uh, Jesus and he, all his ancestors from Abraham up to Jesus. Well, guess who's listed 
in that genealogy. If we just read from verse 4 to 6, it says, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. So, into this family, Rahab, who marries, marries this Israelite Salmon, comes Boaz. And Boaz, so Boaz is born. His mother is this foreign prostitute who knows for real that her future didn't need to be defined by her past choices. And his father, somebody who uh, was willing to marry Rahab and accept her, not because of who she was, but because of who she was becoming. And this is the life that Boaz grew up in. So when Boaz meets Ruth, he's not at all faced by the fact that she's this foreigner. What's been put into him from when he was a child was, actually it doesn't matter where you've come from, it matters what decision you're making now. And um, Boaz knows better, any better than anybody that his future doesn't have to be defined by his past choices or his current circumstances. So that's Boaz. And then we've got Ruth. Obviously the book is named after this person. We know that Ruth stuck with Naomi. She stuck with Naomi's people and, and most importantly, Naomi chose to stick with Naomi's God. Even when Naomi tried to convince her to go back to her family in Moab, Ruth was absolutely clear, 100%, not a chance. Where you go, I'm going to go. Your people are going to be my people and your God is going to be my God. She absolutely knows what she's going to do. And she's not, she's, not, she's not ignorant of the difficulties that are going to come about from it. She knows the troubles that she's going to be. She knows she's, she's going to be a foreigner in Bethlehem. She knows she's going to be a widow. She's childless. Uh, she's got no income. She's got no savings. And her only family is this angry, hopeless, bitter mother-in-law. If you think your mother-in-law's bad, um, Naomi, uh, Naomi you know, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Actually, I shouldn't have said that. My, my mother-in-law's brilliant. Just wipe that off the recording. Um, she made the decision, Ruth makes the decision to go and glean in a stranger's field. And we, we heard last time that as it turned out, that stranger's field happened to be Boaz's field, a, a relative. And we know that Ruth is not weak-minded because she, was, she resisted Naomi when Naomi was uh, really trying to push them to go home. And um, she's not weak-minded. She's not entitled. When she goes and gleans, it's not out of a sense of entitlement. It's in all humility and gratitude. She asks and she's totally humble and grateful for what the people give to her. She doesn't come entitled. She comes in humility. And so Ruth and Naomi are in this position. Naomi can see because of what's happened with Ruth and Boaz in the field and the food that Boaz has been giving them. Naomi can see that God is on the move and that the story has the potential to be redeemed. And so she gives Ruth the specific instructions about how she needs to approach Boaz. And we're just going to unpack these few verses a little bit just to uh, uh, come towards the end of my talk today. So in verse 3 of chapter 3, um, Naomi instructs Ruth. She says, wash, put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Actually, so many of the commentaries 
take those words best clothes and interpret it as a as wedding garb, which which is kind of nice, but it's not actually true. Okay, it's not. It shouldn't actually say best clothes, really. The word the word there is the word similar, and and the similar in Hebrew is an outer cloak, and it's just an everyday garment. It's a normal everyday garment that. Um, uh, the Hebrew woman, women would wear. So why is Naomi telling Ruth to put on a similar? Well, I'm kind of interpreting a little bit, but I think that what she's saying is, it's time to take off your mourning clothes, your widow's clothes, and it's time to get on with your life. Wash, put on perfume, put your normal clothes back on, and, and you're gonna ha- your life is about to be redeemed, your life is about to, to change, you need to get back. Take off the things that are that are reminder of, of your past and the emptiness. God's got fullness for you and it's time to change. And I think, again, that's relevant to, to my life and to your life. Sometimes we hold on to things that we need to let go of. Maybe there's something in your past that you're thinking of right now that's stopping you moving into your future. And sometimes we just have to take it off and put on and get back to put on the clothes that God has got for us and take hold of the future that God has for us. So he says, put on these clothes, put on your similar, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, this is just... <laughs> don't worry, he's fine. Uh, um, don't, uh, don't let him know you're there until you have finished eating and drinking. And I think this is just cunning, isn't it? How many of you wives know that the best time to approach your husband to ask for something is after he's had a nice meal and a glass of wine? Yeah? On a Friday night, on my date night, Fru often cooks a nice meal and, you know, I'll have a glass of wine or a bottle of beer. She can ask me anything after that. Uh, You need to go shopping tomorrow? That's fine. Yeah, have a lovely time. You want a girls' night tomorrow night? Yeah, I'll come and serve you popcorn. Yeah, no worries. I'm weak in those moments. And I think... Naomi knows that, uh, you know, wait, wait until he's eaten something. Wait until he's had a bit to drink. You'll be fine. He'll, he'll, he'll come around. He'll be much more pliable in that moment. It's a smart move. Yeah. Yeah. So Ruth, she does all that Naomi tells her to do. She, uh, she, she, she agrees, not, out of, not because she's weak-minded, or weak-willed, or she's just obeying Naomi blindly. We know that she doesn't do that because she didn't before. She's doing it because I think Ruth also, throughout, she has, she has this sense of God's will, I think. You know, Ruth makes all these decisions, and they're all in line with God's will. And I think Ruth, Ruth can sense that. So she does everything that Naomi tells her to do. And then in verse 7, it says, Ruth lies down next to Boaz. It says, uh, uh, when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile, so he's protecting his harvest. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And again, I was looking at this and I was thinking, well, what does that look like? You know, you're approaching a man who's asleep and you uncover the bottom half of his legs and you lie down there. You would expect him to wake up pretty quick. But Boaz doesn't. And so I was imagining if it was me just lying there, would you go to sleep or would you just be sitting there thinking about it and planning what you're going to say? Uh, hello! When he wakes up. <laughs> That's not going to work. It's dark and... And I just imagined, I oh know, this is me again interpreting, I imagine her 
kind of getting bored. And it says in the next verse, it says, um, can you go to the, it says, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. And I think, I wonder if he's just sitting there just pulling his leg hairs or something. Come on, I've been lying here for hours. Notice me. Something startled the man. And there was a woman lying at his feet. That's got to have shocked him. Yeah, he's like, what? Who are you? He says, he says, who are you? And her answer is, is actually amazing. If we go to the next verse, I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Now previously, when they'd had a conversation, when they first met, she'd introduced herself with this word, Nokri. She said, I am you know, Nokri, which is like a, a, a foreigner, an, out, an outsider, an alien. Um, not an alien, but an alien, a, a foreigner. Um, and now she says, I am your servant. And that word servant is a different word, it's ama, which is, it is a servant, it's a handmaiden, but it's a member of the community. It's, it's somebody who belongs to the same community. And this is, uh, Ruth has taken a step towards him. She's moving away from being an outsider to now making herself eligible. I am your servant. I am now, I am Amma. And um, we can make this same step towards God. Not because we are entitled, not out of a sense that we deserve it, but because of God's grace. We know that we don't deserve grace. Actually, that's a contradiction in terms. You can't deserve grace. Nobody deserves grace. That's the point of grace. If you deserve it, it's not grace. At some point, everybody who is a believer in, in, in Christ and a follower of Christ, we have to come to that realisation that we aren't good enough and we're never going to be good enough. There's nothing we can do to make us good enough and it's all about what he has done. It's all about him and his acceptance of us. That's what makes us eligible. And God wants us to approach him. He wants us to come before him. He, want, he gives us permission. He has made us eligible and in fact, in Revelation, he says, uh, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him and he will eat with me. He's waiting for us to come to him and to ask. So Ruth, Ruth approaches Boaz. She makes a step towards him. She makes herself eligible. Again, not out of entitlement. Not because of who she is, but because of who Boaz is. Because he's the kinsman redeemer. It has made her eligible to approach him in this way. And again, Ruth uses uh, a quite specific language when she asks him to marry her. She says to him, uh, can you go to the next verse? She says to him, "Um, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer of our family. And remember, back in chapter 2, Boaz has made this prayer of blessing over Ruth. He has said, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And that word wing is exactly the same word used in the word corner. So what Ruth is saying here is the prayer of blessing that you made to me, the request that you made to God over me, I want you to be the answer. I want you to to be the um, God's response to that prayer. You spread your wings. I want you to bring me... uh, uh, under God, I want you to bring me that safety, that security, and that rest, that place of rest. And I think that's just an amazing, amazing word, asking Boaz to be the answer to the prayer that he made. And we know that Boaz 
isn't phased at all by this request. He's not phased by her past because of his parents' instruction into him. And his response to this request is, uh, this is kind. He says it's kind. Now, normally, we can use the word kind. Um, if somebody offers you a cup of tea, then it's quite right to say, oh, that's really kind, thank you. Or if somebody offers you most things, you can say, oh, that's very kind of you. If somebody asks you to marry them, normally you wouldn't say, that's very kind. Um, that's very kind. But um, it's, And yet what he's doing there is, it, it, again, Deborah brought this two weeks ago, you know, that, that whole message about kindness, hesed, the loving kindness of God. You are showing a greater kindness now than you did before. So when you, when, when you came with Naomi and you're looking after Naomi, yes, that was, that was kind, that was amazing. Actually, you asking me to marry you is even kinder still. Because what he realises that is Ruth is doing this, not just for her own benefit, but because of Naomi. Because it will secure Naomi's future. It will give Naomi the air that Naomi needs. That's the whole point of... Of, of this type of marriage, this, this uh, levirate marriage, which it kind of falls into, it falls into that. Um, so he sees that Ruth is, is responding out of, out of kindness. And what a great match. You know, obviously Ruth and Naomi have been talking about Boaz and his kindness. And now Boaz is just saying to Ruth, you are so kind. No, you are kind. No, you are so kind. You're the kindest. No, you are kinder, even still. And you can imagine, you know, what, what, a great, what a great match that God... God was weaving together these people for his purposes and to bring about good. So God is on the move. He's reweaving all of these threads that seemed like they were bringing uh, harm and and difficult and emptiness. He's reweaving them all to bring a great outcome. And we need to know what Boaz knew, that our future doesn't need to be defined by our past choices, by our present circumstances, but our future God can redeem our story. Our future can be redeemed. We can turn it around, just like Naomi did, just like Ruth did, and just like Boaz's mother Rahab did. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, writing to them, makes this statement. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Whatever our past choices and whatever our current circumstances, we can make a decision to start on a new path today and take hold of a new future. Maybe it's time to take off the morning gear, morning uh, clothes, and put on uh, our normal clothes again. Get into God's will. We are not entitled. In fact, we are undeserving. In Romans 3.23, it's a very, really well-known scripture. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all the same. It's a level playing field. There's nobody who's better. There's not, we're not in this place, oh, this, that leader's up there and one down here. We're all exactly the same. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we we're all, we're all can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Just like Boaz was Ruth's and Naomi's kinsman redeemer, so Jesus Christ is our redeemer, is our kinsman redeemer. And we can accept redemption, all of us, on a level playing field because of who he is. Paying the price that we cannot afford ourselves, bringing us into his rest, security and safety. I'm not talking about a... um, there's no magic pill for a trouble-free life. I'm not saying your life is going to be uh, trouble-free and painless. We know that's not kind of how life works, not even for, and not even for believers in God. 
Max Lucado, uh, one, of his, uh, uh, one of his quotes, uh, he says this, uh, one of God's favourite words is the word through. The word through. Because we know that's what God does. He doesn't remove us out of harmful situations. He brings us through situations. He brings us through the difficult circumstances. And we look again at the great heroes in faith, in faith throughout Scripture who all came through stuff. Daniel came through the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came through the fire. The disciples came through the storm. Peter comes through prison. Jonah comes through his experience in the whale. David comes through his fight with Goliath. Lazarus comes through the grave. We have to go through things. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because he's with us. Because he's with us. His rod and the staff, they comfort us. Remember, God isn't absent. Even when our life is being woven, even when we're making those choices to weave those, and, and, and it looks like we're weaving harm and it, things look empty, God is present and he's redeeming our story. He's re-weaving to bring about the best possible outcome. Grace, when she was born, she had no chance. No chance. No chance. She had no hope. She was, in a, she was born into a family with a mother and father who, for whatever reason, couldn't look after her or her siblings. She had no chance. It wasn't her fault. She was in this terrible situation. It wasn't her fault, but it is part of her story. It's part of the weave of her life, what she's been through. And God, I guess God asked us as a family to spread the corner of our garment over her, to spread the wings God's wings over her to give her a place of security and of safety and a home of rest. And because of that, her future is not determined by what her parents could or couldn't do, by what she was born into. Her future is determined by God's reweaving. God manipulating the situation, making it good, turning into good, all things working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Grace's story is being redeemed and we get to be a part of that not just through an eye or our our kids but our friends and our family and you guys you're all part of that and it's brilliant and we're so grateful to every to all of you we are God's provision to grace for the redeeming of her story and in the same way she is God's provision to us our story is being changed and rewove because of who grace is and we're learning things about God because of who she is and our, and our story's being improved. Amazing. God, the great weaver, turning things around, making a great picture. And that's it for me today. That's all I want to talk about. But I guess I want to leave you with that thought that whatever we've come from, whatever our past circumstances, whatever we're going through now, whatever our, our circumstances are right now, we're not entitled to anything. But God can redeem our story. God can change things and, and it can be today, it can be this moment where we, we make a decision, you know, there's, just like Richard prophesied, that there's, a, there's people here who've got a decision to make, get God's will on it, you know, pray about this, get God's will, in God's will, however hard 
the decision is and however hard your response to the decision, what it looks like you're going to have to go through, it will be so much better in God's will and with God reweaving the circumstances.